The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate spoiler special podcast of Jennifer's Body, uh, the new, what are we going to call it, horror, thriller, feminist allegory uh, written by Diablo Cody and directed by Karen Kusama. Uh, I'm here in the Slate studio with Lindsay Robertson. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Dana. Who is a frequent contributor to Jezebel.com and New York Magazine. Um, Two, two blogs on New York Magazine, Vulture, their culture blog, and their daily Intel blog. And she also, I should mention, maintains a fabulous personal website that's been around for nine years. Is that right? Almost, yeah. She's been blogging just about as long as there have been bloggers, and I've been reading her site for a long time. It's at lindsayism.com. Uh, that's her name plus ism. So, um, so Lindsay, um, thanks a lot for coming to Jennifer's Body with me the other day. Um, it was a blast to see it with you. Thanks for taking me. It was and, really uh, fun. It, and we had a great conversation about it afterwards, which I'm hoping we can we can recreate here. Um, I, for one, was surprised by how much I liked the movie. I mean, I try not to prejudge any movie as a movie critic. I try to go in with an open mind. But obviously, you know, your experience is colored by what's come before. And as someone with some level of animus toward Diablo Cody, I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> say I hated Juno at all, but I wasn't part of the Juno cult. And specifically, the thing that I hated the most about Juno, or the thing that I didn't like about it, was the writing. You know, I sort of felt like it had a lot going for it. It had a good story. It had some great performances, nice music, obviously. But that kind of Diablo Cody, gotta have a gimmick, gotta have a catchphrase dialogue yeah, just really drove me nuts. <laughs> And so walking into Jennifer's body, I was thinking, oh, God, it's just going to be more of the same. And to my surprise and delight, I actually think that this movie, with some reservations, was pretty damn great. Yeah, as, as you know, I, I loved it. I, was, I said I was invigorated and empowered when I walked out, um, and I wasn't even being ironic. I, I just really enjoyed the experience of seeing the movie. I mean, it's not Citizen Kane. It's not, you know an amazing piece of filmmaking, but the experience of it, it was like being on a ride, sort of, you know, and I was completely, I went in with really low expectations, honestly, because I don't really normally see horror movies, and I didn't really like all the Diablo Codyisms in Juno, and I knew those were coming, and, um, I, but I just really, really loved it. I will say that I loved it. I think maybe you liked it a slight shade more than I did. I'm thinking that I'm sort of in the, the high 80 percentile range of liking it, and you're somewhere in the 90s. But um, but we can get to the Diablo Codyisms and what she does with them that's a little bit different than Juno um, later on. But let's just quickly outline the story of the movie. Um, as usual, I'm going to be lazy and throw it to you. But if you start summarizing, I'll jump in. Um, okay. Jennifer's Body is about two best friends who grew up together, um, who are in high school together. And we should say a very small town, right? Yes. It's a very called small Devil's town. Kettle. Devil's Kettle, which is named for a local waterfall that goes into this... Sort of vortex. Yeah. And nobody... The scientists try to throw things into this vortex, and they never know where it comes out. And um, that comes out later in the story. Everybody's seen the movie already. Spoiler, right? Right. Well, we should, we should mention, obviously, if you didn't get it from the title, that if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want some serious spoilage, then, you know, you should, you should wait until after you have. Yeah. So go on. Um, so one night they go to a club and um, the club burns down. They go to see this band, Low Shoulder, which is like this indie band uh, fronted by Adam Brody, who's hilarious. Um, and they go and basically... Um, Jennifer uh, Megan Fox, who's sort of the alpha girl of the of the duo, yes, by far. Um, Needy's the sort of her name is Needy for one thing. I mean, it's short for Anita, but it's clearly. You know. I thought that was a little overkill. I thought that yeah. was a Diablo Cody overkill moment. Okay, we get it. She's she's the the B girl of the two. You don't need to name the character Needy. Yeah. Also, her glasses were just not the glasses that she would have 
worn. You mean because they were sort of John Lennon granny style? It, yeah, places? they were just supposed to make her look bad, you know, ugly or whatever. But um, which with so, Amanda Seyfried is not an easy thing to do. But. Yeah, because she's she's gorgeous. But um, so basically, um, Jennifer gets kidnapped and um, by the band, and they try to perform a ritual, satanic ritual, on her to kill a virgin because they believe she's a virgin, um, so that they can make it big like uh the guy in Maroon Five. And um It's so it's sort of like joke. a Faustian bargain. Like they're gonna sacrifice her soul so that they can have worldly success. Which is yes. something we don't find out until quite a bit later in the movie. Yes, it's true. But unbeknownst to Adam Brody and the rest of the low shoulder band, um Jennifer is not even a backdoor virgin, <laughs> yes. as she tells us early on. And so it sort of backfires and she becomes this thing that we don't quite know what it is. She's an undead something. You want to describe like what uh, supernatural thing she is? She um well she has supernatural powers. Um she when when she's recently she wants to eat human flesh and I guess she's chosen guys. Um to eat and Although she, gets um, a few she turns into a, as well yeah and she turns into this weird fanged thing and she projectile vomits black blood and with uh needles in it uh, i'm not really sure what that is i don't think it's ever really explained yeah that's a really disturbing image though yeah and, but but in between becoming this horrible sort of man-eating monster she will sort of when she gets her fill of blood like a vampire she'll sort of um become full again and become again just a, a sexy beautiful girl going to high school yes um and but when she hasn't fed or whatever she calls it in a while she um her hair is dull and lifeless and her skin breaks out and she just looks terrible so it's kind and, of man-eating as makeover right yes. consumption of human flesh as makeover um i guess she i mean she's a succubus is what you know i guess they figure out <laughs> um but so she is something you know a succubus whatever that is um from Greek mythology. And there's one of those classic um, occult research montages where Needy is in the library going madly through these, you know, books about the Maleficus Maleficarum or whatever. Yes. And it's great. It's straight out of sort of every possession movie ever. So so then, then what goes on to happen? All right. So um, Jennifer starts to cut this swath through Devil's Kettle, basically seducing and then eating various high school boys. Yes. Um, and interestingly, it's not kind of a revenge narrative where she's not until um, much later is there any question of getting back at the guys who did this to her. It's just more that she's, you know, become a literal man eater and the people that she's eating are are, are innocent. Yes. Um, um, so then Needy decides to. Needy starts to, you know. To catch on. Catch on. Yeah. And um, nobody. She tells her boyfriend about it. She has a sweet, adorable, like loving, caring, nice guy boyfriend. And, um, she tells him about it. Um, and he doesn't believe her. And like, she just starts to do more research and starts to uncover this. And nobody, um, nobody believes her. And she, she ends up breaking up with the boyfriend or, or just for his own safety. Um, because it's putting him in danger, uh, for him to be around her, I guess. And, um, do we talk about the ending? Or Sure, that's what spoilers are for. Yeah. So it all comes together, as so many high school thrillers do. I was thinking of Carrie at the end of the movie. at the uh, They don't call it the prom, but at the, the school dance, yes, right? Yes, the school dance. Oh, and there's um, there's another thing that's, that's really funny throughout the movie. Um, the tragedy at the bar, where uh, the bar burned down and a bunch of people died. Um, the indie band, Low Shoulder, uh, records a song, or had, the song that they were singing is called "In uh, Through the Trees. And it becomes this national hit, and it becomes, like, the song of that 
the Devil's Kettle tragedy, and they become huge stars based on their tragedy song, and like, and of course, on their deal with the devil. Yes, <laughs> and um, so the the school dance is actually called Through the Trees, and it becomes the theme song. Actually, let's take a break if we can and listen to a little bit of Through the Trees because whoever composed oh, yeah. this kind of pastiche of a, I don't know what band they're supposed to be like. You actually had some theories of who they were supposed to be, but it's sort of a perfect pastiche of this kind of emo indie sort of whiny boy song. Yes, it could be on the radio right now, and it, it's also been going through my head. I wonder week. actually if they're going to try to make this song go viral somehow. But let's listen to a clip. Right, that was sort of an aside, but it's something that's very nicely done in the movie. Not only is the song, you know, perfectly written for that, you know, the, the space that it occupies in the movie, but it's used in a really funny way where it keeps coming up and it gets on Needy's nerves and she's turning off the radio in disgust as this as this song will not leave her alone. Yes. So Needy goes to the dance alone um, because she doesn't want her boyfriend to go um, with her because she's afraid for his life. And um, he is on his way there. His mom gives him mace. Just in case, because you know all these all these guys in the town are, you know, being found um, horribly mutilated. Horribly mutilated, and uh, the, as the mom said to the boyfriend, um, "Did you hear what he looked like when they found him?" Talking about one guy, and he said, "Lasagna with teeth." And she's like, "Yes, good. I'm glad you heard." <laughs> um, so she, he's on his way to the dance, walking through a park, and he runs into Jennifer, and in her beautiful. Um, spring dance dress and she tells him that um basically that his girlfriend has been cheating on him was cheating on him with one of the guys that she ate the goth guy and that uh they were fucking on a uh, porking on a semi-regular basis um and then she kisses him and tries to drags him off to this um weird abandoned abandoned pool yeah with this green water and disgusting vines and, you know, in the park and uh, drags him into the water and is about to eat him when Needy suddenly, like, realizes it and, like, runs and finds them and jumps in the water and there's this huge confrontation and um, between the two of them and, the, unfortunately, the boyfriend doesn't make it. But then Needy ends up, well, I guess as long as we're spoiling, and here's sort of the biggest spoiler of all, is that um, in another confrontation in Jennifer's canopied bedroom, finally at the end, um, Amanda Seyfried's character, Needy, manages to kill her the only way that you can kill such a creature, which, like a vampire, I guess, is driving a stake through its heart. And there's like a really wonderful confrontation, I thought, amazing confrontation between them. Um, Jennifer dies. And then, of course, nobody believes Needy's story, and she ends up in jail, which we forgot to mention is where she begins the movie. Yes. There's a frame story of her in jail. Yeah. Well, maybe the final scene's a good way to sort of get into the, some of the thematic material that I wanted to cover in this movie. I actually think that this movie is deceptively smart. I mean, it's sort of a great, just a, a great, gory, pulpy thriller. It's a pure piece of pulp and very satisfying on that level, obviously. But I also thought it was a pretty great movie about female friendship, which, which was not something that I expected. I mean, I sort of knew from the buzz and the previews and so forth that there was going to be a little bit of a lesbian angle, which there occasionally 
is, you know, and that it was sort of about two beautiful girls who do some sort of occult thing together. And so I had just assumed that it would be a pandering cat fight sort of scenario that would make me really uncomfortable and that it would be something really unfeminist. But I actually loved the way that the movie kept the focus on the two girls' friendship and, you know, on sort of the, the fact that that was as much Jennifer's motivating factor as anything to do with, with men. Yeah, it was, it's weird. It, it's female empowerment, but sort of um, the men were not the enemy at, at really any point. Um, it was sort of basically like, a, I think of it as a horror movie about a toxic friendship, you know, um, taken to its complete and total extremes. I mean, I think a lot of people can relate, um, especially women, to sort of, feeling like a sidekick or like bullying by friends and like, you know, everyone I think can relate to a a friend who's sort of an underminer. There was a book that I love by Mike Albo and Virginia Heffernan that came out a few years ago. The Underminer. The Underminer, yeah. And I I keep reading it every six months or so. I'm just obsessed with it. I've always wished they would make a movie out of it. And this is sort of almost in a way like The Underminer, the horror version, you know, this poor, you know, needy has been the you know, sidekick to this girl. But then also they have a real loving friendship relationship. They, I mean, they do actually seem to be very good friends. Well, this is something that happens throughout the movie that's kind of great, is that just when you've put Jennifer into the role of just the complete, you know, just Jason, the the slasher, who's just the complete horror villain, there'll be a moment when she's, you know, freshly fed again and sort of herself (laughs) again, and you see that she is still, you know, a person with feelings and a a person who values her friendship with Needy, and I really was touched by the fact that in their final kind of exorcist-like confrontation on the canopy bed, that the moment that Jennifer finally gives in and you realize that she is going to buy it is when, um, is when... (laughs) I always want to call her Amanda Seyfried. What's her character name? Needy. Because well, I don't like that name that I can't remember it. When Needy yanks off her BFF, you know, her sort of heart pendant that yes. the two of them have, this matching locket thing that they have. And when she rips that off and throws it to the ground and you realize they're not BFFs anymore, then, you know, you know that it's really over. Yeah, and that's sort of, almost they, they paint it as sort of, that's the moment where uh, Jennifer sort of loses her power in a weird way. Or just for long enough for Needy to, you know, stab her in the heart. Um, I loved the way uh, Jennifer, when she's stabbed in the heart, says, my tit. And uh, Needy says, no, your heart. <laughs> like that was, that was just like a good little, I guess that's a Diablo Codyism. Well, just, and it's, but it's actually a great character moment because Jennifer's body has sort of been, you know, the focus of the entire movie. And, and part of Jennifer's tragedy, I guess, is that she is nothing but her body. And that's how she experiences herself, right? And yeah. that's the whole reason she ends up getting into the stan- satanic rocker's van in the first place. So in a strange way, it also becomes this sort of sad story of, of Jennifer's low self-esteem. I mean, this is just, this has a sort of reviving Ophelia written all over it. I would so want my teenage girl to see this movie because I think, you know, for all the gore and sex in it, I mean, who cares about the gore and sex? The fact is that I think it actually has kind of great values at its core. Um, let's talk about some of the stuff that we didn't like or that drove us crazy. Um, and then I want to talk about the performances, too. Actually, which would you rather do first? Um, let's do performances. Okay, um, well, <laughs> so yeah, take it away. Um, well, we have to talk about Megan Fox's acting because, um, personally, I've never seen the Transformers movies. I have, but I, I still hadn't seen her acting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I realized that the second she started speaking in the movie, I don't think I've ever seen Megan Fox actually speak before this movie. And I was you just honestly, like straddle motorcycles and still photographs and yeah, things like that. I mean, it's just sort of. I mean, I've written about Megan Fox before, and I still and I've never heard the woman speak. You know, it's it's kind of ridiculous. Like it, it, I was kind of she's blown away. Like she was a much much better actress than I ever would have expected. Um, I'm not saying she's 
you know, should win an Oscar or anything, but I mean, she just completely took hold of that character. And I can, I really can't think of anybody else who could have really done exactly what she did in this movie. Um, she just completely embodied like the queen bee, not just looks wise, but just like the high school, just the way she was just so dominant. Right. Her sort of status seeking behaviors were right on yeah. the money. It just seemed like she understood, to my surprise, exactly what movie she was in. I would have sort of imagined that she looked just right for the role and that was sort of all that was needed and that she sort of reached the limits of her acting abilities and that was fine for that role. But in fact, I feel like she really got the whole, you know, strange genre universe that this movie occupies where it's not quite, you know, a, it's not quite a sex movie. It's not quite a horror movie. It's not quite a thriller you know it's not quite a friendship movie but it's all those things at once and and she really really got that but Amanda Seyfried also was no slouch at all and I don't know about you but I was a huge fan of Mamma Mia I loved Mamma Mia and like 90% of movie critics (laughs) and and she was one of the things that made it so delightful she just jumps off the screen in that movie and is incredibly gifted she actually does her own singing well which most of the people in that movie are doing their own singing not particularly well yeah, I think, well, it's sad because, I mean, she is obviously probably the better actress, but nobody's really surprised at that in this movie. Um, but she, no, she was fantastic. She was really great. I mean, I think everybody can kind of relate to her in some way. I think almost every female friendship I can think of in some attenuated form has this dynamic, basically. I can almost go through all mine and think, like, I'm the I'm the Megan in that one, you know, the Jennifer, <laughs> but I'm more like the needy in this one. Obviously, you know, not quite so exaggerated, and we're not, uh, well, yeah, we're we're not barfing black needles on each other or anything, but yet. And, well, one thing I noticed that was interesting was um, the night that, that – uh, Jennifer shows up and, and barfs the black needles and um, <laughs> she pushes Needy up against the wall. I mean, she physically abuses her friend and then Needy's still friends with her the next oh, day. Oh, that's even before she becomes the monster. You yeah. Mean. I mean, well, no, she's a, she's a monster already, but like, and Needy's starting to notice something's weird, but like, it's almost like... No, no, but she actually shoves her up against the wall before she becomes the monster. Before they even head out to the roadhouse, there's a moment that they're sort of teasing and pushing and shoving, oh, and, and Jennifer pushes a little bit too hard. It's, All right, it's, maybe it's, that explains it's, it's why she It's a nice foreshadowing, didn't. yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's get to the stuff that, that – that, oh, wait, wait. I have one more performance to shout out to, too. An actor that I'd never seen before, Johnny Simmons, who plays Chip, you know, the sort of good boy love interest. He plays in the band, and he's a good high school boy, and uh, he's madly in love with Needy. And it's a, a part that I love because it's he's basically a completely uxorious and subservient boyfriend, but he's a good guy, too. Yeah. He um, was great. And so so Johnny Simmons plays that role, and I thought he was really excellent, and somebody who I could imagine appearing in that kind of role, you know, starting to appear as the, the nice guy. Um All right, let's take a a little break for a word from our sponsor or a word about our sponsor, Audible.com, which is the leading provider of audiobooks on the web and which has a special relationship with Slate Slate Podcasts where if you sign up through one of our pages, you get a free audiobook, which you can keep even if you don't decide to keep your one-month trial membership. And the place to do that is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So um, we have a recommendation for this week that's related, extremely related to our to our movie. It's a book by Diablo Cody about her life as a stripper. It's a memoir of her life before she became this um, sort of successful and controversial screenwriter. It's called Candy Girl. And unfortunately in Audible, they don't have Diablo Cody herself reading it. I think that would be interesting. I, I, I always love hearing an author read in their own voice. This is narrated, though, by Natalie Moore. And uh, you can find it on audible.com, Candy Girl, A Year in the Life of an Unlikely Stripper. So if you really, really hate Diablo Cody, you can go and scratch the itch there, or if you really like her and want to know more. 
Um, so that is actually a perfect lead into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is uh, Diablo Cody's script for this movie. We should also mention that everyone talks about this movie as if it's a Diablo Cody movie. I actually myself just recorded a conversation about it in which I forgot to mention the director at all, which is really <laughs> unfair of me because I think it's actually the director that you know brings this movie to the next level. Her name's Karen Kasama. It's her third movie, and her first movie was uh, Girl Fight with, with Michelle Rodriguez. Do you mm-hmm. remember that movie? Which is another sort of empowerment anthem that's really, really fun and memorable, I think. Her second movie was Eon Flux, Eon Flux with Charlize Theron, which I never saw, and which apparently was really unmemorable and a total flop. I think that was kind of her attempt to you know step into the Hollywood realm, but I'm kind of excited about seeing her future work after seeing this. Um, so, but so let's talk about how um, this the script you know takes away in some in some points from the enjoyment of this movie. Um, well, I kind of disagree with that a little bit. Oh, um, please do. <laughs> I thought, I thought it was interesting. Um, in Juno, sort of like all of the characters, or not all of them, but more than one, more than just Juno, uses the weird, you know, Diablo Codyisms and like the the Diablo rhyming speed. slang. Yeah, right. Um, Cutesy insults. This is one doodle you can't un. Do or what? Home skillet. Home skillet. Yeah. Oh, that first scene of Juno was so painfully cutesy that I still can't believe that people stuck with the movie all the way through. As did I. I mean, I stuck with it, <laughs> yeah. but but those those scenes are really off putting. Yeah, and I well in this movie it's really just Jennifer who says any of those. Um, so it's almost like they're coming from this character instead of you know the tone of the whole movie. It's not like they live in a world where everybody speaks this way. It's just this I don't know one. about that lasagna with teeth. You just quoted that one. The boy well, says that. And Anita gets her share. I mean, I agree that it's smart. It's smart to try to channel those Codyisms through the mouth of Jennifer's character. And it makes sense, of course, that this alpha girl would have her own lingo and her own kind of style of, of high school slang that she speaks mm-hmm. in. But I just still think that there's something about the tone, something about about dialogue that, that Diablo Cody doesn't quite get. Or it's like she gets it too well. It's, it's like overkill. I just don't understand it. She's such a good writer of story. And, and now of character, too. I think I like the characters in this movie. But she just has to lay it on too thick with that gimmicky stuff, and it really is getting in the way of her writing. I think she kind of needs somebody to, or just herself, just write it the way she wants to write it, and then cross out eighty percent of those things. Right. And it's like didn't Coco Chanel or someone say something about like put on everything you want to wear and then look in the mirror and take off three things? Yeah. Like that's what Diablo exactly. Cody needs to do. Yeah. Like the moveon.org, you know, um, that was just a little gratuitous. All the stuff that got laughs at our screen, I mean, everything that got a laugh out loud almost always would be an overkill line. So I guess there's just people that love that that style of dialogue. And I will say that it's certainly unique. I mean, it certainly sounds like no one else, and she sort of created her own style. But I think she's just reveling and luxuriating in it a little too much. Yeah. Well, I guess we should wrap up, wrap up pretty soon. There's not much left to spoil, but is there anything else you want to throw in? Um, well... J.K. Simmons was amazing, as oh, yes. always. Good shout-out, definitely. J.K. Simmons, who we all know is the eternally bald editor barking from behind the desk in the Spider-Man movies. Well, I mean, he's in every movie now, and every yeah. TV show. But he's always the he's bald guy. He's burn after reading. He was the best part. He's fantastic. And we just, he was just an extract, which you haven't seen yet, but he has a really funny small part in that. But, but, but bald is so much a part of the J.K. Simmons image <laughs> that just J.K. Simmons in a wig is hilarious. He doesn't yeah. even need to say anything. And he also, for some reason, he uh, had a hook for one hand. Nobody never explained. Why, never explained. Um, also, Adam Brody was. Uh, people are sort of saying he stole the movie. Um, he doesn't have enough scenes to steal the movie, I don't think. But um, he was, and he claims that his uh, character, the indie rock guy, uh, was based partially on Jared Leto, Brandon Flowers of the Killers, and Adam Levine from um, Maroon Five. But I think it's pretty clear that it's just straight up Brandon Flowers, like. 
I, I want to know the main thing I want to know about this movie is is Brandon Flowers mad or is he like sort of on board because it's just I mean it is completely the mannerisms him. the mannerisms the um the, the raccoon video, eye makeup the, uh, the video part where the, or at the dance when he's singing he has like sort of the old timey microphone I mean he's just doing Brandon Flowers and then later on he has a mustache exactly like later on. Once he got famous, Brandon Flowers grew this exact mustache, and like, I just wanted, I want to know if Brandon Flowers is out there like fuming about this, or if he's like, I wonder if Brandon Flowers is fearing awesome. for his life, and he's afraid that he's going to end up in the same <laughs> horrible fake crime scene photos that document oh, yeah. the end of the of the band. We should mention that too, just as our final thing. I think the credit sequence is really worth staying for. Yeah, it, um, it has a great Courtney Love song, a whole song, not Jennifer's Body, interestingly, which is presumably the. Courtney Love song that inspired the title of this movie. Maybe they couldn't get the rights to that one or something, but but it's it's a whole song, and under the whole song, you sort of see this montage of I think what are supposed to be crime scene photos. And so the way that you find out what happened to Low Shoulder, this this creepy emo band led by by the Adam Brody character, is that you just you know get a tour of their hotel room, which they were joyously trashing before a concert until Amanda busted in on them and did some serious revenge. Yes, and um, a friend of mine who didn't like the movie was like, oh, they just saw The Hangover. And said, oh, let's make the end of our movie like the end of that. Um, But I don't know. It seems like... Oh, I think it's completely... I mean, except that it was a bunch of still photographs, I don't really see anything in common. Because the visual universe that's being referenced in Hangover is, you know, people's snapshots, cruddy snapshots from a personal camera. And these, to me, really looked like, you know, old school crime scene photographs. You just knew that there was some serious art direction behind that, those those closing credits, and they were really well done. And they also, you know, um, extend the narrative and sort of put a a final point on it, so they're worth staying for. And they show that um, our hero is, is definitely a villain... A killer forever, a real killer, not just of succubuses. So you you mean <laughs> the, the, the movie implies that a serial killer has been unleashed upon the world, or is she done once she's gotten rid of Low Shoulder? Do you think? Um, I think she, I don't think she's done. I think she's just evil now. I really do. <laughs> so Jennifer's body too. Well, the next one will be Needy's body, I guess. Yeah, maybe. Well, all she has is that little bite that gave her some of the powers, but um, maybe it's enough. Okay, well, Lindsay, thank you so much. It was really fun talking about Jennifer's body with you. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for taking me to this movie. All right, well, let's do it again soon. Thanks for having me. Our producer is Wynne Rosenfeld, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.